You good? Is that good? Yes. Technical difficulties, that's all right. So we praise God for opportunity to gather and sing words like that. Christ is mine forevermore. That is the great song of the Christian in this life and in the life to come as we will be delighting in our identity in Christ forever. I just want to uh, wish all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. I, I pray that the Lord will encourage you today that uh, by reminding you of the great gift that you are to your family, whether you have your family here with you or you don't, your family may be far away, but that whatever the circumstances are for you today, that you will be reminded in one way or another, and hopefully in many ways, of the great gift that you are to your family. But also, as we talk about our Christian hope here in Romans chapter 8, I pray that the Lord will remind you today that your hope is not in being the perfect mom. So, uh, you know, Mother's Day is one of those days where you feel celebrated, but maybe uh, today you also feel your inadequacies as a mom. You know, that is the case for all of us. Our inadequacies, our weaknesses are before us. And so maybe today you feel that way as a mom. And so as you're going through this day, you, you feel like maybe you just don't measure up. And I just want to say to you as we're talking about Romans 8, as we're talking about our hope in Romans 8, I just want to encourage you with this, that you will, you will inevitably, as a Christian, you will pray and read Scripture and meditate and try to be the mom that God has called you to be, but your ultimate hope is not in your performance as a mom, nor is it in how your kids turn out, but it is in Jesus Christ. And so above all, I pray this morning that on this Mother's Day, you will be encouraged with that hope, that your hope will be rightly fixed. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 26 to 30. We're continuing to march, walk, crawl, however you want to describe it, uh, our way through Romans. And we are in this high point of uh, this epistle, which is a high point of the New Testament. Uh, this is one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. And as we are walking our way through it, we've now come to this chunk of text, verses 26 to 30. And it's not always easy to determine what text to take in any given uh, instance. You know, it, it amazes, one of the things that fascinates me is to study early Christian preaching. Uh, many of the church fathers that we think about or we read, a, a lot of what we have from them are homilies, which are sermons uh, they preached expositionally from the very early days of the church. They preached expositionally through books of the Bible. So, for example, uh, John Chrysostom preached 88 sermons on the Gospel of John. Just as an example, so you go through and you can see how he preached his way through that book. And it's always interesting to see what chunks of text are taken in any given sermon because as we know, you know, the apostles did not write these things thinking, okay, this will be the, the first sermon and this will be the second sermon. They just wrote a letter. 
In Paul's case, to the Roman Christians, he wrote a letter to them. And so it's the interpreter's job to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What are the different dividing lines and what are the different sections of text? But as we've gone through, we are in this little patch of text, verses 26 to 30. And today is part two of a set of sermons entitled, Our Unfailing Hope. What Paul wants to do in these verses is he wants his readers to be filled with confidence and endurance as they look forward to their future hope. So Paul wants to put out in front of his Christian readers, in front of anyone who would read this epistle in the history of the church, on into, uh, up to Christ's return, he wants to put before his readers this hope that stands out there in the future. And he wants that hope to fill us with confidence and endurance as we face the trials of life. Paul wants to reassure us that we're going to make it to glory. As Christians, we are going to make it to our destination of Christ-likeness. You know, as Christians, all of us have felt the attraction of the world. This is Part of what it means to live as a Christian in the world is to daily, hourly feel the attraction of the world. It pulls on us. It beckons us to come and be a participant. Every day we are tempted to find our home and our identity here in this fallen world. And then what happens is a text like Romans 8 comes along, not only to encourage us. That's one of the things that happens as we read through Romans 8 is we're encouraged, particularly in in, uh, powerful sufferings, sufferings that really are moving us and tempting us to, to lose confidence, to lose hope, to not have endurance. So we know that Romans 8 encourages us in our sufferings, but it also has the effect of plucking us plucking us out of our worldliness to remind us where we are headed, to remind us of future glory and our unfailing hope. So last week, I gave you three assurances that Paul puts before his readers in verses 26 to 30. And we covered the first two last week. We're going to cover the third this morning. But last week, we covered the first two. So first, the helper... The Spirit, Paul tells us, helps in our weaknesses, and particularly our weakness in prayer. As we are going through our lives, we pray, and even on our best days, even in our best prayers, they fall so far short of what God's perfect will is. And what we're told in verses 26 to 27 of this passage is that God has already overcome that. And the way he has overcome that is he's given us his spirit to dwell in us who makes these groanings, these prayers, these utterances to God, unheard, wordless prayers to the Father on our behalf. So that when our prayers fail, which is always, they are always weak, the spirit intercedes on our behalf, ensuring that God's will is carried out in our lives. And maybe this was something new to you. You know, this is not something that 
I have heard talked about very much. And I remember when I first started studying this passage, it was a, a, really, a, it was new to me. I mean, this was something that I had not really thought of, is that God works out his will in our lives practically by this intercessory work of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We know that the Holy Spirit does all of the things we've read before in Romans 8, and those were somewhat familiar to us. But when we come to these verses, it is a little bit surprising. It is, to say the least, mysterious. But that is one of the ways we reach our final destination, by the work of the Helper. And then secondly, last week, we saw the good. By means of the Spirit's work of intercession, God is turning everything in our lives for our good, for our future glory. And that was another thing that, was, uh, that probably has not uh, dawned on many of us is that the way that God works this good that, that we read in Romans 8, 28, that famous verse, the way that God does this, the means that God uses is the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that God is providentially working and there are many ways that God folds all the things in our lives toward our good that everything works toward our good. Many ways that God accomplishes that. But in the context here, we understand the primary way is by the intercessory work of the Spirit towards our future glory. For those who love God and are called according to this purpose, everything we experience in this life is part of the ingredients for bringing us home, for bringing us to Christ-likeness. Now think about that for a moment. When you think of ingredients, you think of someone who is baking a cake or someone who's making a dish, and you think of all of these little ingredients, and probably you have come across someone baking something or making something, you've made something in the kitchen, and you notice that there are a couple ingredients that you don't really like. But once those ingredients are integrated into the whole, what comes out at the end is good. So I don't like onions in and of themselves, but when they're cooked a certain way and when they're, when they're cooked with other things, the end result can be delicious. And that is exactly the way our lives work. God takes all the experiences of our lives, those that we call good and those that we call bad, the tough things and the easy things, and he weaves all of these together. And to use a baking analogy, he bakes all of this together, all of the ingredients, with the result that what comes out is our good, our Glory, And that reminds us this morning that whatever you're going through, whatever is weighing heavy on your heart this morning, you can be assured that God is using this and that this is part of God's means of preserving you, part of God's means of getting you to the new heaven and the new earth. It really does give us perspective on all the things we experience in life. Today, we are, looking, we are going to look at the third assurance from our passage. So we've seen the helper and the good, and today we're going to look at the chain. And for that, we will turn to verses 29 to 30. In these verses, Paul explains the chain of actions, or you could say 
the chain of decrees that God has made or that God has taken to ensure that our ultimate good comes to fruition. To ensure that those who are called according to his purpose actually reach that purpose. To be called according to God's purpose is to actually reach that purpose. But the way we reach it, the process by which we reach it, is outlined for us here in these two verses. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read all of Romans 8 up to verse 30. Uh, Focus in on our passage, verses 26 to 30. And then within our passage, focus in on our verses for today, 29 to 30. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, that is unbelievers, Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, that is, believers, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then here's our passage for the last couple of weeks. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask his grace as we come to these two verses, verse 29 and 30. Father God, we come before you this morning just praising you for the unshakableness of your promises and how our hope is fixed and secure and certain. God, there's nothing in this life that is sure and fixed and certain to be in this in Adam world is to be tossed around by different kinds of circumstances and different emotions and thoughts, sins in our own hearts and lives. It is to be the recipients of the sins of others. It is to be affected by the trials of this fallen world, to be assaulted by the world and Satan. In our own flesh. God, we recognize that there is such shaky ground all around us. But Lord, we praise you that in Jesus Christ we have firm ground. We have a firm place to stand. An unshakable, unfailing hope. And God, we praise you that this is where we find our identity. We thank you, God, that you have given us this to to act as as the centerpiece of our lives, that everything in our lives, every relationship, every task, all revolves and draws strength from this great truth, that in Jesus Christ we have been redeemed and we will one day be glorified. God, we ask this morning for encouragement from your Spirit. We ask that we would be assured 
as Paul intended these verses to do for those first Christian readers, and as I'm sure he himself was reassured as he even wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, that you have used these words to reassure and encourage and comfort your people for thousands of years, for 2,000 years, for centuries of Christian experience. God, we thank you that these words and many words like them can sustain us unto death. God, we ask this morning also that you would challenge us. There are many ways, Father, that we are just engrossed with the world. Many ways that we are tempted and fall into loving the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, so tantalizing. Lord, we ask that this morning you would break those bonds from our hearts. We pray that you would challenge us to live in light of our heavenly citizenship. God, to draw strength from our unshakable hope in Christ. Would you be with us now, Father? Would you help me in this preaching? Would you help all of us in this hearing that your word would be clearly explained and that it would be clearly heard and that our hearts would be affected, all of us impacted deeply by what we encounter this morning. God, would you be merciful to us in this? We cry out to you, Abba. Father, our Father in heaven, we cry out to you. We ask for grace this morning, grace to listen and grace to receive in our hearts in humility, in meekness, and as obedient children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two major things we notice about this chain. You don't have those up there on the screen, but you can write them down quickly. Two things that we notice about this chain, and these two things are going to occupy our attention for the remainder of the sermon today. So first, it is undeserved, and second, it is unbroken. It is undeserved, and it is unbroken. I think that's the, the big, those are the two big effects that this text should have on us. When we walk away from these two verses, we must see these two great truths about God's saving chain. So let's look first at undeserved. It is undeserved. Look with me at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There is so much packed into this little verse As I said last week, verse 29 defines the good and the purpose of verse 28. So we see for our good, all things working for our good in verse 28. And then we read of those who are called according to God's purpose. So what is our good? What is God's purpose? That's what verse 29 is about. The answer is... To be conformed to the image of God's Son. That is our good. And we talked last week about how we know, of course, that God works all kinds of temporal goods for us. We have great confidence 
in a God, a Father who knows what we need before we ask it, who will supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus, who comforts the afflicted, often by means of those who have likewise been afflicted. We know that our Father's fatherly love is indescribable. And we have seen all kinds of temporal goods that God has worked out of what we regard as temporal evils, temporal bads. But above all, we must read this verse rightly in its context. And in its context, verse 29 defines what the good is in verse 28. It is to be conformed to the image of God's only Son. This is referring to our future resurrection. And maybe you've used this verse primarily to refer to our sanctification, and there is some truth in that. We'll talk about it in a moment. But the, the application of this specific verse, the meaning of this specific verse, concerns our future resurrection. This is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, where he says this, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We've borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam. We will also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is Christ, who has been raised and who has, I love this uh, phrase in Hebrews, who has passed through the heavens. From dusty to heavenly, from mortal to immortal, from perishable to imperishable, from sinful to sinless. That's the transformation we look forward to as Christians. And that's the transformation that will happen at Christ's second coming, at Christ's return, at our future resurrection from the dead. The voice of Christ will go out and those who are in the tombs will be raised. Something the prophet Daniel foresaw many, 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 many years beyond his time as he describes it in Daniel chapter 12. In John 17, 24, Jesus offered this prayer request to the Father. Jesus' prayer requests are precious to us. We know God answers his son's prayer requests. If anyone has ever prayed in accordance with God's will, the son prayed perfectly in accordance with it. And this is what he prayed in John 17, 24, in that great high priestly prayer as it has been called. Father, I desire, it's the will of Christ, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's Christ's will. That's Christ's will for your life, to see his glory. Nothing could compare to that. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christian, you're going to see Christ's glory. But we are not going to be mere spectators in heaven. 
You think, wow, that's great. We're going to see Christ's glory. That's going to be quite a show. That's not it. This is not described in the New Testament as us being mere spectators, but rather seeing is becoming, as John tells us in 1 John 3, 2. And we've cited this verse a number of times, but we need to see it once again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know See the confidence, see the certainty. But we know that when he appears, speaking of Christ, we shall be like him. And then he says this, because we shall see him as he is. To see him is to necessarily become like him. Seeing is becoming Beholding means becoming, and it does indeed start in this life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what we're told here is that there are degrees of glory as we grow in our sanctification. So glorification, you know, we've got these neat categories. And uh, in, in, you read a little systematic theology or some of you, you'll talk about justification and sanctification and glorification. And these are... These are terms that need to be defined precisely, and there are distinctions for sure between them. But what we see is that they, they bleed together in this, this beautiful, holistic picture. And what we're told here is that our sanctification can also be understood as glorification begun. Our glorification is already happening, and it is to be consummated at Christ's second coming when we will be transformed entirely finally into his image. But what is happening now as we are being sanctified is we are being conformed from one degree of glory to another in this life into the likeness of Christ. It begins now. And yet, we have to see that what Paul is referring to here is the consummation, Christ's return. So that's the destination for the Christian. Our good, God's purpose, Christ's glory, together with our glory. But how do we get there? How do we get to that wondrous destination? That wonderful place that we all long for. As we've already seen in our previous chunk of text, in a chunk of verses, we are groaning within ourselves. We're eagerly waiting for this. So how do we get there? And the answer that Paul gives is the chain. And that's, as I said, our third point. The answer is the chain. This is the how. This is the mechanism. This is the process by which we come to future resurrection, Christ-like Christ-experiencing, Christ-seeing glory. In verses 29 to 30, Paul gives us what has been called 
the golden chain. You've probably heard these two verses referred to in that way, maybe, the golden chain. The chain of God's saving acts or decrees. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And let me just say this. This word predestined, we'll we'll talk more in a moment, but I just want to quickly say this. I oftentimes hear people say, when talking about the doctrine of election or predestination, or when talking about the differences between those who understand predestination to be entirely apart from us, God's unconditional election, and those who don't, that that whole conversation really is just abstract. It's really not relevant to real life that you can just kind of go on believing either of those and you're fine, you live the Christian life in the same way. Not so. And the way we know that is because Paul is giving us this chain right in the middle of all this discussion of how it is we suffer, how it is we endure trials, how it is that we endure afflictions in this life. It is eminently practical whether or not you believe that God's election is unconditional. It matters for how we live. It matters for how we think. And it matters for how we suffer. It matters for assurance of salvation. It matters for how we deal with our weaknesses and sins. It matters for how we deal with the weaknesses and sins of others. This is so practical. Not merely abstract. But this chain of saving acts or decrees, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And what we notice from these first two actions, these first two actions, foreknowledge and predestination, as I said a moment ago, is that God has done this for us apart from us. We did not earn or merit this chain. It is entirely undeserved. So let's look at each of these in order to understand how it is that this chain is, what I'm saying is, in order to understand how this chain is undeserved, not according to any merit in ourselves, we have to hone in on these first two words, these first two verbs, these first two actions or decrees that Paul gives us here in verse 29. So we're going to look at each of these. First, foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. This really is an interesting word that has given rise to much debate among Christians. Christians even like George Whitfield on one hand and John Wesley on the other. Differences that we see among the church fathers, among those who come after the reformers, differences we see in people we read Uh, today or listen to today pastors and teachers that you have had throughout your life I've had throughout my life we, we see differences and debate on the question of foreknowledge some conclude so I'm gonna try not to get too much into the weeds here but I think it's important that we dive into this a little bit so just kind of strap in and stick with me some conclude that the meaning here is cognitive in nature, just simply cognitive, having to do with the mind or foresight. Foreknowledge in in this understanding is knowing beforehand 
knowing ahead of time. Foreseeing, just foresight. Knowing something before it takes place or foreseeing something out in the future. Merely cognitive in nature. Some have argued that that is what this word means and that is how it ought to be taken. And the way this view has typically been fleshed out is to see this as God foreseeing our future faith. God looks into the future and sees beforehand those who will trust him. He foresees our faith. And then he acts on that knowledge accordingly. You see how it's cognitive in nature. And this is actually, this is actually the primary way this word, this Greek word foreknowledge or to foreknow was used in Greek literature. This is the primary way it was used all throughout. And it matches the etymology of the word. It literally does mean to foreknow in terms of its etymology. It's know with beforehand basically attached to the front of it. But there's another way. There is another way, a better way, a less superficial way to interpret this word in this context. And by the way, I should say that, uh, that other way of, of interpreting foreknowledge actually appears twice in the New Testament. Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17. In both cases, knowing beforehand is the way that verb is used. Foreknowledge, to know before. But as I said, there is a better way to interpret Paul's usage here in verse 29. And that is to see it as relational in nature. So you can understand it as cognitive in nature. It is mere foresight. Or you can understand it as relational in nature. To foreknow is interpreted here to mean essentially to forelove. To enter into relationship with before, to choose or determine even before. And notice that the verb here refers to people. It does not refer to something. There are things you can know cognitively beforehand, but the way it is used here suggests relationality because it is people who themselves are foreknown. So let me give you several basic reasons why I think this second way of interpreting it is superior to the first. So several reasons, and this, these are just a few. There are others. But first, like I said, try to stay with me. First, this seems to be the way it is used in the majority of New Testament occurrences when God is the subject. So yes, throughout Greek literature in the ancient world, this verb is used typically to mean foresight. But when we look at its usage in the New Testament itself, the majority of instances refer to this relationality. The majority of instances in the New Testament have God as the subject. So for example, we read in Romans 11 verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That is the language of covenantal love. That is the language of knowing. It is like Psalm 1 where we are told that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's the language of relationship. My sheep 
know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. This is the language of relationship. Second, this matches the way the verb to know was used in the Old Testament when God is said to know his people covenantally. God knows his people. He sets his love on his people. So for example, Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, this is the one we refer to typically when we're talking about abortion. We're talking about the evil of abortion. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is the language of intimate covenantal relationship and love. And notice how knew you is put together with consecrated you and appointed you. You see how those things are wrapped together? Just as foreknowledge and predestination are wrapped together in our verse, so too in Jeremiah, knowing intimately is wrapped together with consecrating and appointing. This is the language of determination, of choosing. Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him, and that's the the way it's rendered in English. This is Abraham going back to Genesis 18, But the the Hebrew verb is to know. For I have known him or chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is not I have known beforehand anything about Abraham. This is God's choice of Abraham to be his servant. God chose Abraham, he knew Abraham, he entered into a covenant with him. And then Amos, chapter three, verse two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. I have known. Once again, this is the language of covenantal relationship. God knows everything about all the nations. But Israel, God has chosen. God has set his affections on this people. That is what Amos is referring to. Not foresight of something done. Third, the connection here in Romans 8 between the foreknowledge and predestination of God matches what we read in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. So here we get this language of foreknowledge, which understood in light of the Old Testament could be basically understood as foreloving. He foreloved. And then we get this verb predestined, to to foreknow and to predestine. And it's interesting that we get this same combination when we go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is what we read. Even as he chose us, listen to the language, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, Before the foundation of the world, that's the pre part, that's the for part, for knowledge, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And here here it is. This is the main point I want to make. In love, there's foreknowledge, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Finally, if I haven't lost you yet, a fourth reason that we should take this to be not foreseeing future faith, 
but covenantally loving or setting his affection on those whom he has chosen. Fourth, how can God foresee faith in the person described in Romans 8, 7? How? Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's everybody in Adam. It's everybody born in Adam. Cannot. Cannot. Indeed, it cannot. Does not submit to God's law. How in the world can a person be said to be hostile to God, to not submit to his law, and then be said somehow out of that soup of depravity to reach up and just lay hold of God by faith. How in the world? That doesn't make any sense. So how is it that God, looking down into history, foresees in that soup of depravity, souls just reaching up and taking hold of the glory of God by faith? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we are to understand foreknowledge as tightly joined to predestination. Before creation, before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly chose to set his love on us. That's the love of God. It goes back before you were made. It goes back before God said, let there be light. It goes back before God made Michael and Lucifer and all the other angels, some of whom fell. God, before he made anything, chose sovereignly to set his affection on you. Christian, that's amazing. And then out of that love, that knowing us, he chose us, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who would be called, justified, and glorified. To predestine means to preappoint or predetermine. It means to appoint beforehand. To, to appoint before the world was made. To determine, to ordain. God chose us before creation. He preordained us to this end. It had nothing to do with you. Nothing. Zero. Nothing to do with us. We did absolutely nothing to deserve this chain. This saving, gracious chain that God set in motion before he made anything. This doctrine of election, I love the way, by the way, this is the doctrine of unconditional election. Election must be unconditional, as we see here. God foresees and he predestines. But I want you to hear a quote from John Stott about this doctrine, because I think it, it really does help us understand the effect it has on us, or it should have on us. He says, the doctrine of divine predestination promotes humility, not arrogance. Assurance, not apprehension. Responsibility, not apathy. Holiness, not complacency. And mission, not 
privilege. I could go through each of those, but I just want you to feel the the force and effect of that. Uh, Many will say this can't be true because of the effect that it will have in people's lives. But when we get down to it, we realize the effect it really does have in our lives. Apart from the immature expressions of it, the immature and uninformed expressions of it that we find or that you've heard, go to the Bible, not to that annoying, obnoxious person who first told you that God chose some for salvation and not others. In this way that was haphazard and maybe a bit arrogant, go to God's word. Don't let your uh, skepticism of this doctrine be based on some bad interaction that you had with someone uh, long ago. Go to Scripture and see what the Bible teaches about God's predestinating grace for those who would be saved. What we notice as we come to the end of verse 29 is that our predestination is not only from God, but is also for God. Notice the purpose of our being predestined to be conformed to Christ. Why did God do it? Why did God foreknow us, set his love upon us, And out of that love, as Ephesians said, in love he predestined us. Why did God do that? Why did he choose us to be saved? It's not about you. It's not about me. In order that he might be, Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. The glory of Christ is the reason. That Christ, God enfleshed, Jesus Christ, the God-man, that he might be supreme and preeminent among many brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. That amazes us. Christ is our Lord. He is our King. He is the sovereign ruler of all. And yet we are told we will reign with him and we have the status of his adopted brothers and sisters. What future awaits us? Many, many, Brothers, which harkens back to God's promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Many, many, Christ supreme, Christ preeminent. That's what God has been doing since eternity past, all for the glory of his incarnate Son. So we see that this chain is undeserved. Secondly, it is unbroken. I will be more brief here, but I want to go to verse 30. And I want you really to notice one big thing. Look at verse 30 with me. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here Paul resumes the chain. He broke it off in verse 29. He foreknew, he predestined, and then he described what we've been predestined for. But now he's got to pick that chain back up because it's not over. He picks the chain back up. What began with foreknowledge and predestination now moves to calling, justification, and glorification. Now the chain enters human experience. We experience God's call. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you are a Christian... If you have been justified, it is because in your life, in your experience, God called you to himself. God called you to Christ. 
What grace. There you were, just in rebellion against God. There you were, pursuing your own passions and desires in mind and heart, following the course of this world, a child of wrath, a son or daughter of disobedience, under the lordship of Satan. And God called you to himself. He called you to come, and you came because of his effectual call. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls his people to himself. It necessarily, as we read here, leads to the next link in the chain, which is justification. Now, we talked a lot about justification in chapters 3 and 4. God reckons us righteous through faith in Christ. We experience this as Christians. We experience God calling our hearts. The call goes out to all people in one way, not the effectual call, but the call of the gospel goes out to everybody. If you go, I think of a, one of those Billy Graham crusades where he's standing up preaching thousands of people, I mean, tons of people just sitting out there. All those people are being called in one sense. Come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ. But the only ones who come are those who are called in this sense, effectually called unto being justified, being made right with God. And finally, we will experience glorification being transformed into Christ's likeness, which we've talked about already. But here's where I want to focus your attention as we close this morning. This is not just a chain of possibility. This is not just a logical chain. Well, that naturally follows from that, and that naturally follows from that, and that naturally follows from that. That, of course, is true. But this is not merely that. It is an inevitable chain. It is an unbroken chain. Now this is where our hearts are just lifted up to heaven. It's an unbroken chain that goes back where? Not to you. Not to you. But it goes back to the loving predestination of God before he made anything, before the world began. In the heart and mind of the triune God. From beginning to end, one item necessitates the next. We see this with the repetition of the word also. Notice that word also. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Once foreknowledge and predestination happen, the others must follow. They must. They cannot not follow. It is sealed. It is certain. And this is liberating for the Christian. I can't imagine. You know, I, was, I grew up as a Southern Baptist and I knew of, uh, my dad used to play this thing called dartball where you throw these darts at a board, basically play baseball with darts. And I used to go with him when I was a kid and I can remember some of the churches that they played were called such and such free will Baptist. 
And one of the things that I, as I grew up, I, come, I came to learn was that free will Baptists believe you can lose your salvation. Break in the chain. A break in the chain. But there is no break in this chain. It is certain. You cannot lose your salvation. How in the world can you live the Christian life like that? How in the world can we face our frailty and our sinfulness? If this chain can fall apart, it can't. It cannot. And the clearest evidence for this, I think, is the tense of the verb glorified. Although it hasn't happened yet, it is placed in the same tense as the other verbs. Now you have to be careful saying too much about the tense of Greek verbs. But I'm not going to go into that. The big thing I want you to see is that glorified is the same as those other ones. It is already accomplished. God decreed all of this from the beginning. And it is as though it has already happened. It is as though in the mind of God, your glorification has already happened, Christian. You're waiting on it. You're groaning for it. You're eagerly anticipating it. But in a sense, it's already happened. So, Christian, you will make it to the end. You will be glorified with Christ if you have the Spirit. If you are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will be glorified with Christ. Take heart as you meditate on God's unbroken golden chain. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we are in awe of your undeserved favor. God, that you made us for your glory, that you set your affection on us, many human beings. Though sinners we are, you set your affection on us and chose us in Christ to be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, this doctrine creates many questions for all of us. Who among us in the history of the church has been able to exhaustively outline all the mystery involved in your eternal decrees? in your sovereign grace. But Lord, may it not be that our curiosities and questions become obstacles to being faithful to what the Bible says is true. God, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to your word and to believe it and to live it even when we don't understand how. Lord, to trust you knowing that our view of things is so limited and you are perfect in wisdom. You are all-knowing, you are all-powerful, and you are entirely good and just. Help us, Father, to trust that and help us to be humble and grateful and encouraged and assured in light of this golden chain. Would you be with us now, Lord, as we remember the sacrifice of your son who died for us, who bled for us to bring us into 
the new covenant. May we commune with him now as we meditate on his finished work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.